Amen. Well, good morning, uh, CBC. Um, Grace and peace to you. Um, Obviously, based on our passage, I want to talk to you about hope this morning. And, of course, the place to do it is here in 1 Peter, which is the definitive um, epistle on hope. It was written, um, this letter we have before us, originally to churches who were about to face very severe state-sponsored persecution. Um, The dam at this point was only beginning to break. And so Peter writes to prepare and equip these particular churches to respond in a manner that's consistent with the one whom they follow. Time and again throughout this epistle, Peter will refer them back to the example of Jesus who shows us how to suffer and how to deal with these things in a manner consistent with our hope. And again, what they need, these churches, to live this particular life is hope. And though our situation today is not entirely analogous, there's much to encourage us here in hard and difficult times. So with that briefest of introductions, I want to get moving because um, there's so much to cover in this amazing passage. And the first thing is, is that the basis of our hope in this life and in the next is our rebirth. We have been born again to a living hope, the passage reads. Now, this rebirth is a metaphor for the transformation that you and I have undergone through faith. We have passed from our former dead-end existence to one that can now be described as a living hope. So we've been born out of one life with one end into a new life with eternity before us. In other words, hope is not automatic. Hope is not our natural condition in the world. Ephesians 2.12, the apostle says, Remember that you were separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Hope is not our natural condition. Hope is dependent upon God. And in particular, Peter says, His great mercy. God has not been hard-hearted or indifferent to our hopeless condition. He acted in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of His Son to give us a future and a hope. It's not our inherent right hope. We forfeited it through sin. It's a gift now that's come to us by the tender mercy of God. And therefore, the Apostle Peter begins with a benediction. There in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The source of our hope, the one who has given us hope, does not go unrecognized by us. We bless God because He has been so incredibly kind and merciful to us, giving us a great and living hope through His Son. And we bless Him because He has caused us, Peter says, to be born again. 
we are reborn into a new existence and a new future. Later on in his epistle, in verse 23 of chapter 1, Peter picks up this theme and expounds upon it. He says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Our lives could be told as the tale of two seeds, the imperishable, our natural existence, and the imperishable, the existence we have from above. God has caused us to be reborn by means of indestructible seed, the gospel message. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus tells his disciples, but my word will not pass away, Luke 21 33. And it speaks this new birth by the indestructible seed to the nature of the new life that's been planted within us. It's not the product, our new life of perishable flesh and blood without hope and destined to pass away, but it's the product of the living and abiding word of God. And though all things will fade away, this word, this life within us will not. And born from this imperishable seed, Peter also says we're born into an imperishable world. Look at verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Those terms underscore the eternal nature of our hope. It's untouched by death. It's unstained by evil and unimpaired by time. And it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Now the protection envisioned here that God has afforded to us is not that He will save us from all suffering and adversity. Again, the rest of the letter assumes that the church will face trouble and persecution in this life. To be protected doesn't mean that we will be spared from every eventuality. Jesus, remember to his disciples when he tells them that they will suffer persecution, he does not assure us that no sparrow will fall to the ground, but that a sparrow, though it does fall to the ground, will not fall apart from the Father's care and knowledge. And then he reassures us and says that his disciples are more valuable than many sparrows. Even though we do suffer, even though we are afflicted in many ways in this life, we will be protected and cared for by the Father, not one hair of your head will perish, Jesus promises to us. And so with our rebirth comes now a new manner of life. We are born into a living hope. And born into this living hope, we are born out of our former dead-end ways of living. Look at what Peter says in verse 14 of chapter 1. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your 
ignorance. So born again, we're children now. And he says, now as children, don't be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. And then just a few verses later, 17 and 18. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Our rebirth into hope entails a decisive break with the former ways of hopelessness. Peter says that we are no longer to be conformed to the former lust which were ours in our ignorance. Spending our lives on pleasure, that is how we lived when we were ignorant of hope. We gave ourselves to our lusts and to our pleasures because our lusts and pleasures were all that we had in the world. We were ignorant of hope and therefore we lived for this world according to this world. Peter also calls this former way of life of ours a futile way of life which we inherited from our forefathers. In other words, it was a manner of life that was fitted to hopelessness. It was a manner of life fitted to futility in the world. The motto was, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why aspire to anything higher, to anything nobler without hope? None of it matters in the end. Death casts a shadow of meaninglessness, of futility upon all our actions. He said, this is the way you used to live when you didn't have hope. But now, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, we have a future and a hope. And this hope has opened up to us a new manner of living, a new way of being in the world Look at now, verses 15 and 16. He says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Hope leads to holiness. Without hope, there really is no reason to live for anything but the passing pleasures of this world. And apart from a deep appreciation and acquaintance with our hope, it's impossible for us to be the people that we are called to be. Hope has to be functioning at the center of our lives, constantly reminding us that we have something more than the here and now. Hope directs us toward a horizon beyond this world, then it therefore teaches us to live differently in this world. It's become something of a cliche, but C.S. Lewis is right. He says in Mere Christianity, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. They all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied by heaven. So God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And this rebirth and hope 
is the basis now for an entirely new existence. A life no longer conformed to the former ways of futility, but opened up now to eternal horizons. A life that is modeled and patterned after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, rebirth, new way of living, and now to our hope more in more directly. Our hope is not an ordinary hope, but the Apostle Peter says a living hope. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 3. Ours is a living hope as opposed to any other kind of hope because it is born and bred in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It is a hope that cannot be silenced by death. It answers the one thing that renders all other things meaninglessness in this life. It renders, it answers the one things that renders all other things hopeless in this life. Therefore, it's a living hope. It's powerful. It's dynamic. It is a strong hope. We have a living hope from the Lord. Now, I'm going to state the obvious here, but God cannot die. He is life. Life is not an attribute that He possesses. Rather, life is what He is. His name is I Am. His very uh, identity is self-existent life. Death, therefore, cannot harm God. Just like darkness cannot harm light, it's an impossibility for it to have any effect on God's indestructible life. Now for us, it's quite a different story. Death is not an impossibility, but an inescapable fact. It's the fate of every human being. We are well within its power and dominion. Death, and not life, will have the last word over our lives. And as we said, it's the one thing that renders all other things hopeless. Death silences hope in the world. It is the end that renders all beginnings meaningless. But God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, united in Jesus through whom we have our hope, through his resurrection, united in Jesus, are both the incorruptible nature of God and the corruptible nature of man, joined in one person in his incarnation. Therefore, because he shares our nature, he is able to fall with us into death. But because he is God, he is able to fill death with his presence so that even the grave becomes now a source of life in his resurrection. In Jesus' death, death itself comes into contact with the very life of God and death itself is overcome and canceled out. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the basis of our living hope, is no mere resuscitation. Jesus rises from the grave not to return to normal human existence. The resurrection is not a part of nature's natural cycle. 
the rhythm of life, death, and rebirth. Now those things are normal to us. And the resurrection is not like those things. It's not a rejuvenation. It's not an awakening. It's not even the miraculous reversal of death. The resurrection is not the next step in the natural course of events, what we might expect or imagine. Resurrection is something else altogether. It's something purely unnatural. Now death is like darkness or blindness. There's no such thing as darkness, only the absence of light. And there's no such thing as blindness, it's only the absence of sight. These things have no real existence in and of themselves. They're merely a privation. They're merely the absence or lack of something that is real. And of course, neither does death have any real existence. It's only the absence of life. And when death comes into contact with life, it vanishes and dissolves. Death is swallowed up in life. There's a great example, or illustration rather, from um, the ancient church, Gregory of Nyssa. He said that God hid his divine nature in human nature as one might hide a, 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 a bait under, um, or a fish hook underneath bait. And he goes on to say that when death swallowed up the bait of Jesus' human nature, it unwittingly swallowed up um, the divine nature of God along with it. And he says, thus, when life came into contact with death and light shone upon the darkness, it vanished away. For it is not the nature of darkness to endure the presence of life, nor can death exist where life is active. So Jesus is raised to a positively different kind of life. In the resurrection, a new dimension of human experience is opened up. Something beyond the power and presence of death. Jesus has not returned to life as normal, as we know it, under the conditions of death, but he has entered into the newness of life. Jesus has been taken up into the livingness of God. So in a word, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the defeat of death. The scripture says in 2 Timothy, Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death. Life is active in the grave, and therefore death has been defamed. It's been broken and tamed, and it's been enlisted into the service of life. Hence, we now have a living hope. And it's the only kind of hope that there really can be. It's resurrection hope. It's the only kind of hope that answers the problem of death. So what of death? Um, Another church father, St. Athanasius, um, in his classic book on the Incarnation, um, he gives this as an apologetic to unbelievers. He says, it's a little long, so bear with me. A very strong proof of this destruction of death and its conquest by the cross is supplied by a present fact, namely this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offensive against it, and instead of fearing it by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as something dead. 
Before the divine sojourn of the Savior, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. But all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full, thou, full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. So, the resurrection does not ignore or explain away death. Rather, it enables us to face death, the last enemy, with straightforward confidence, knowing the ultimate triumph of life. Death remains for now, but the fear of it is gone. It's no longer terrible. The valley of the shadow of death is not bypassed. A bridge is not made to cross over it. Rather, it's triumphantly passed through. Thy rod and thy staff, says King David, comfort me. So with the fear of death overcome, all our smaller, less significant, but nevertheless real fears are also dissolved in its wake. The fear of defeat, of disgrace, of powerlessness, of missing out, of not having the life that we wanted to have, which are all branches of the one great fear of death, are emptied of their content because of the resurrection. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Fear not, for I have overcome the world. Fear not. So all our eggs are not in the one basket of this world. We are not banking on things turning out according to our expectations in this life. Indeed, we don't even expect them to turn out according to our expectations, nor do we need them to. Instead, we heed the Apostle Peter's instruction, verse 13, fix your hope completely, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our inheritance the grace that's to be brought to us comes to us in the return of Jesus. And there our hope lies, in the living and abiding word of God which cannot fail. And so in the meantime, Peter instructs us, okay, put your hope there, and then in the beginning of verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Now, a literal translation of that phrase, prepare your minds for action, would be gird up the loins of your mind. Now, in, the, um, in those parts of the ancient world, uh, long robes were customary, and to do anything with any sort of haste required tying the loose ends of your robe around your waist to clear them from your knees so that you could do what needed to be done. Now, today, the phrase might be something like, roll up the sleeves of your mind. It denotes readiness. It's time to work, a specific act of mental preparation that we take before the action begins. So he says, put all your hope in what's to come and roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for work. And that command to gird up the loins of your mind is a deliberate allusion to the Passover and the Exodus, right? The story of the children of Israel leaving the bondage of Egypt and Pharaoh. God commands them as they're celebrating the Passover meal for the first time, Exodus 12, 11, You shall eat 
in this manner, with your loins girded, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Peter draws us back to that event and says something of the effect that we are Israel in Egypt. It's no different situation. God is soon to act and deliver His people from the hand of Pharaoh. Therefore, because our salvation is right at the cusp, we stand, loins girded, staff in hand, ready to leave in a moment's notice. And what that means for all of us is mental and spiritual sobriety. We are not ignorant about the road ahead of us and the hardships that we are going to face in this life. Later on, Peter will tell this very same audience, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. He says, prepare yourself, be ready. Fix your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we've prepared ourselves for this very thing, for hard moments, for difficult times. And our hope is where it should be. Our hope is laid up in heaven with this inheritance that's to come to us. And so we recognize then that it's the cross before the crown. That we suffer with Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We suffer with Jesus so that we might be glorified with Him. We are equipped then, enabled to respond according to the need of the moment. Rather than fumbling over ourselves, we can hit the ground running. Because our loins are girded, our staff is in our hand. And our suffering, rather than breaking us, rather than destroying us, it refines us and proves us. Which leads us now to the concluding end of the sermon. What does our living hope amount to in our time in Egypt? Courage on the one hand, knowing that the last enemy is defeated, and on the other, great joy. Now, because our hope is not just some ordinary hope, but a living hope, it bleeds from the future into the present. It's so vital and strong, our hope, that it causes us to rejoice and exult even now. Let me read for you verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." So see how realistic the Apostle's vision is. He doesn't treat us as logs of wood, as robots, unfeeling programs who are unaffected by our suffering. He acknowledges, one, our various trials, and two, that they bring us distress. Lepeo is the Greek word, and it's the same word that the gospel authors use to describe Jesus' emotional condition in the garden before he was going to um, bear the sins of the world for our salvation. 
He was greatly distressed, it says. In other words, we're talking about real sorrow. That's what Peter acknowledges here. The inevitable grief that comes to all of us in this world. Yet, he says, even in the midst of such sorrow, even in the midst of distress and trouble in our lives, he says, we rejoice greatly in our living hope. Now, it's not one and then the other. Both of these are in the present tense. It's both of them together. Things may come to absolute ruin in our lives, but we have an inheritance being kept for us that we are also being kept for. In other words, it's a hope that's not determined by our circumstances. Our joy is not dependent upon things going our way in this world. Indeed, when things don't go our way, we are driven even more into the arms of our hope and our joy. It becomes a matter of survival. It becomes more tangible as we press into it, as distress pushes us into the arms of our Lord and the inheritance that he is reserving for us. Now, Peter also reminds us that our distress is momentary for a little while, verse 6. And he'll repeat the same counsel at the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will confirm and establish you. Our sorrow, our pain and distress in this life is not forever. God has set an end to it that it cannot transgress. And once it has served its purpose, he will make all things new and wipe away every tear. And so we need to hear that a little while when our suffering would pretend to have the final and ultimate say in our lives. It's always only a little while. And that little while, though difficult, is for our benefit. Evil and suffering are in themselves meaningless. They serve no purpose. It's pure death. It's pure, it's pure void and emptiness. But God turns them, those, those completely evil and, and, and destitute moments, God turns them upon their head and he uses them for good. And he uses them specifically to confirm our faith. Verses 6 and 7, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our faith is proved, and it's proved in the fires of testing. That's proved first in the sense that it's tested. Our faith is subjected to conditions and into an environment that it does not operate on on a day-to-day basis. These times of testing force us to use muscles of our faith that have long been dormant to recover an awareness that has slipped from our mind. Testing comes and it's like we're a runner who hasn't jogged all winter long and they get out at spring and begin to use muscles that they haven't used in quite some time. One realizes in the midst of testing that their faith is stronger or maybe weaker than they had suspected. 
It's a time of self-assessment. It's tested our faith, either for honor, having passed the test, having realized our faith is where it needs to be, or along the way, or it needs more work. And we need to strengthen our faith. We need to put our hope more fully on the revelation, uh, the grace to be revealed to us in the revelation of Christ. And second, our faith is proved in the sense that it's authenticated. Now, rarely does one's faith fail completely in the moment of testing, though that is a possibility. And for that very reason, Jesus instructs us to pray, lead us not into temptation. However, whether we come across the finish line in complete stride or we limp across, we finish. And in finishing, there is always a reward. The proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this praise and glory and honor that Peter speaks of is not which, that which we give to Jesus, but quite remarkably that which we receive from Jesus. When our faith is tested, particularly in the form of persecution, it's the way of Jesus that we're taking. It's the same cross that he bore that we are ourselves carrying. We are imitating the Lord, which is the main exhortation of this letter. Consider him, right? Look to him as an example. Peter will say again and again and again. And imitating the example of our Lord Jesus in this age, we are given a share of his glory in the next. When your faith is authenticated, it will result in praise and honor and glory. As the apostle Paul says himself at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So God has given us a living hope that in the thick of our trouble and grief, we might rejoice with the joy inexpressible and full of glory. And accessing our hope, being able to see it and to behold it and therefore to rejoice in it is a matter of faith. Verse 8, you do not see him now, but believe in him. The Apostle Peter says, you do not see him, but believe in him. We don't see the risen Jesus, nor do we see our inheritance reserved in heaven for us. We see, rather, what is clear before our eyes is the brute fact of existence in this fallen world. But though not seeing, we believe Though not knowing the risen Lord in the way the disciples did, we believe in him. We believe that the tomb was empty. We believe, we don't see, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. We believe that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, Philippians 3.20. 
we believe that God cannot lie and that he who promised is faithful. And now as we turn to Holy Communion, we remind ourselves that it's the visible sign of our invisible hope. These elements, the bread and the cup, are given to us because they can be seen. They're an assurance, they're a testimony to increase our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ who was broken and crushed on our behalf because of the Father's great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we share in communion now in assurance that we will share it again in the kingdom of heaven. And so may these elements be to us the strength we need, the heavenly bread and drink to see us through that we might run the race before us with endurance. So I invite you now to come receive the elements to rejoice greatly in this hope that is given to us. And I will lead us in just one moment.